Blog Talk Radio. Hello to everyone out there and welcome to Hallway Conversations on Epilepsy.com. My name is Dr. Joe Servan, Editor-in-Chief of Epilepsy.com, and today is Thursday, October 15th, 2015. We're going to be talking about something that we have brought up on our site uh perhaps not as uh, broadly or with a lot of emphasis in the past, but we thought that today would be a good day to highlight a particularly difficult-to-treat and manage syndrome that involves a seizure emergency. We're talking about a syndrome called NORSE, N-O-R-S-E. And to join us is a, is a dear friend, colleague, Dr. Larry Hirsch. He's prof- Professor of Neurology, directs the Epilepsy Program at Yale University. Uh, And uh, Larry, it is always a pleasure to have you here this morning. So welcome to Hallway Conversation. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate you having me. Well, let's kind of get right down to it. And just for those um, that may not know, can you kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, your role, your current work in epilepsy, just to give a sense of uh, the viewpoint from uh, what uh, folks will be hearing today. Sure. So I'm a clinical epileptologist, a neurologist specialized in epilepsy, um, and I take care primarily of adults, some with kids. And I have had a long-term interest in epilepsy, seizures, and EEG in critically ill patients, uh, which kind of led to my interest in Norse, which we'll be talking about. Well, I, I guess, you know, um, that, that we might as well kind of just dive right uh, to it. Can you tell us what is Norse or what does it stand for, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. So Norse stands for New Onset Refractory Status Epilepticus, and it implies that there's no obvious explanation to it. So um, most of the definitions require, just like the name says, it has to be refractory, and that usually means it's status epilepticus, so prolonged seizures that do not respond to at least two drugs, so typically a benzodiazepine and one other uh, typical anti-epileptic drug given intravenously for status. And the um, cryptogenic part usually has been defined as no obvious explanation in the first two days or the first 48 hours. So if somebody comes in with a big stroke or hemorrhage and they have status epilepticus, that would not be considered Norse because there's an obvious cause. Um, And also it specifically excludes herpes simplex encephalitis because that's pretty readily identified now. It is a real emergency. needs to be treated uh, with antivirals right away. Um, But so we're left with all the others. So people come in with Status epilepticus, not responding to medication, no obvious cause in the initial workup. Got it. Can, uh, even though, uh, can, can, do you have a sense, and I know this is kind of a work in progress, but I'll ask it anyway, how many people develop this? Sure. Well, there have been some estimates of that. Um, so we know status epilepticus, uh, we have pretty good numbers of that, and uh I think somewhere around 80,000 people in the United States developed that um, with estimates going up to 200,000, but somewhere about that. And one-third of cases of status are refractory. Uh, So you're still at somewhere around 25,000 cases a year. 
Now, Norse, at least in two different series now, about one-fifth of refractory status will be this uh, unexplained new-onset type. Um, so that comes out to somewhere around 5,000 patients per year in the United States. Uh, and despite all that, the literature has way fewer cases than that, really, um, until a recent series we just published, there were uh, fewer than 50 patients reported. So, so it's very understudied, um, and it's, it's much more common than realized. And one of the main reasons is no one was using the same term. It was being called all different things. Um, and in the literature, you'll find that as well. It's been called a variety of things. The, the other most common one is called uh, the pediatric version, which has been called fires or uh, febrile infection-related uh, encephalopathy or epilepsy syndrome. Um, so that's a similar syndrome, whether it's identical or not, is somewhat debated, but uh, very similar devastating uh, childhood status epilepticus that's preceded by a febrile illness. So that's probably um, similar in its pathophysiology. Okay. That is, and that helps us out. Do, and, you know, uh, do you have a sense of who may be at risk? Um, well, that's kind of the devastating thing is this takes perfectly healthy people of virtually any age uh, can get this, and we really have not identified any specific risk factors. Um, so and studies have shown, at least in the adults, it's a little more likely in females, so about a two-to-one ratio. Um, but it can be at any age in, in our uh, recent series. So, so I'll mention that we just recently published a, a series through the Critical Care EEG Consortium. Uh, Nicholas Gaspard was the first author. Um, and it was 130 cases identified through um, 13 centers in this uh, consortium. And that's where a lot of the data I'll mention will come from. Um, but it, there were really was a, it could be any age, but there was a bimodal distribution where somewhere around age 29 and somewhere around age 65 there were peaks where it was a little more likely. But other than that, I really can't say who is at risk for this. It strikes otherwise healthy people. Okay, uh, the, and the, and I guess that uh, I guess that's as, as I said, a work in progress as to how we figure this out. You, you've kind of answered this question, but because in, in your definition, but I'll just ask it again for emphasis. How does this present? Right. So it typically will present with a mild illness of some kind, uh, often one that doesn't attract much attention, a typical febrile illness. Um, and then several days later or right after that's resolving, people will present with seizures. And it usually starts with partial seizures or complex partial seizures. Um, and then they gradually become more and more frequent over, over a couple of days until they're in nearly continuous seizure activity. And then they come to the hospital, they're treated aggressively, and they tend to be rather refractory. So they can need uh, high doses of medications and uh, of, of many of them. Obviously, they have to be somewhat refractory to qualify as NORS, but they can be very refractory and need, uh, even with anesthetic medication, it can often be quite hard to stop these. 
And that phase will last for weeks and sometimes even months where they have just severe refractory seizures. So that's kind of the typical presentation. Um, some other little features of the early presentation that came out of the Gaspard series. Um, one thing was that almost half of the patients had some confusion with their initial febrile illness. So I think that's kind of the tip-off that it's not just your usual uh, respiratory or GI illness going on. Um, and there were five people who had hallucinations, and it turned out all of them ended up having an autoimmune etiology, um, oh. with four of them having anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. So that's just one little tip-off. If hallucinations were part of the early picture, it's, a, it's strongly suggests it's autoimmune and probably the NMDA syndrome. Understood. Um, uh, again, we know um, we know how about statuses, and you've kind of given us uh, that. But why should we worry about this? Uh, I mean, I think it, that sounds obvious, but I'll ask it again, just for just to kind of uh, put it out there. Why should we worry about this? What are the complications here? Well, um, in most of the series, the mortality is somewhere between twenty and thirty percent. So obviously, that's quite high complications um, are very high and they really just come with the prolonged intensive care unit stay and often the need for anesthetic medications to stop the seizures. So it's very common to have complications related to that with intubation, with hypotension, need for pressors, uh, renal dysfunction. It's, it's really everything you see in critically ill patients. So it does take a massive, epi uh, massive effort from a multidisciplinary team to treat these people, um, and it obviously has can be quite devastating. These perfectly healthy people have this, and then there's a significant mortality. And um, the other is of those that survive, more than half of them will have new neurologic deficits and won't get completely back to normal, and many of them will have chronic epilepsy. Virtually all of them stay on medication. Uh, um, in the Gaspard series, about 37% had seizures in the follow-up period, but I suspect it would be even more with even longer close follow-up. So it is a fairly devastating uh, syndrome. But I should point out that there are people who do do very well. Okay. Um, and even those who can take over a month to control, some of them will still have good functional outcome. Um, and in the overall series from Gaspard, 41% uh, of the survivors did have good functional outcome, um, perhaps not perfectly back to normal, but still did very well. So it's not completely hopeless, but it is a devastating syndrome. Understood. And thanks for that perspective so that so folks realize that. Um, you you give in a sense of, of at least the general idea of treatment because of the seizure emergency part. Uh, and how how is the how is this treated versus status? Is it the same? How is this treated, and how successful is that treatment? Right. Um, so initially, it's treated like any status epilepticus. Um, one of the specific issues that comes up is should it be treated with immunotherapy? Because um, uh, I, I should mention a little bit about etiology because that relates to how you would treat yeah. it. Um, so in the 130 cases in the multicenter uh, study, about half of them ultimately did have some etiology identified, and 
those were most commonly autoimmune. It was uh, 37% of them had an autoimmune etiology found. Um, some of those were perineoplastic and some were autoimmune without cancer. And the most common ones were anti-NMDA encephalitis and voltage-gated potassium channel encephalitis. So those are two syndromes we're getting to know well as okay. uh, neurologists and neurointensivists. Um, only 8% turned out to have an infectious etiology, and there have been a variety of infections where there's a case report or two out there. Um, I think it was the herpes class of viruses were the most common, not HSV because okay. that was an exclusion. Um, but EBV, um, VZV, varicella, and a variety of others. There's single case reports of a variety of them. So you do need to check for all the autoimmune antibodies, perineoplastic antibodies, and uh, infections that can cause encephalitis. So the other half, no, no etiology was found despite extensive evaluations. Um, so getting back to your question on treatment, right. certainly when one of those things is found, they all get some kind of immunotherapy. Um, but there's some evidence that even the ones who do not have anything found should still be treated with those. Um, so a, a recent paper just came out from uh, UAB, so in Alabama, mm -hmm. uh, where they looked at 11 of their own cases and reviewed a bunch in the literature of Norse, and they basically found that good outcome was more likely if they were treated with immunotherapy. It was 42% versus 20% in those who were not treated with immunotherapy. And in the Gaspard series, it turned out half of the patients were never treated with immunotherapy. Oh. And that's basically because people were waiting till they had some reason to. A lot of these patients have nothing specific on MRI, nothing dramatic on the spinal fluid. They might have a few cells or a little elevated protein, but no clear immune syndrome or no clear inflammation going on. Nonetheless, it looks like those patients still might respond to immunotherapy, um, and there's some evidence that the earlier you give it, the better they'll do. So that's the bottom line. Is for, I think for these people, once their workup is sent off, I would recommend treating with immunotherapy. It's usually steroids first. Uh, uh -huh. So IVIG and plasmapheresis are used commonly. And, and so any of those three, do, do you have to use all of them, or do we, is it still too early to say if there's any particular protocol? Yeah, that's very hard to say. I, I would say I, I would start with the steroids. Uh, if anything, that seems to be the most effective. Um, okay. But certainly you can go on to the others if if uh, patient still needs it. What, what do you think? Um, you know, uh, th this is new. This is complicated. It's it's an emergency. What should doctors out there that may encounter this, what do you think they need to know now about this condition? Um, well, the first thing is they should realize that it is a syndrome, that there's some research going on now. So they should use the term Norse. Okay. Um, that's the easiest way to quickly look up what the latest uh, findings are on it. Okay. Um, as I mentioned, they should really use immunotherapy, even if there's no definite uh, immune cause found. Um, these people all need to be treated in a, somewhere where they're used to treating refractory status. They need continuous EEG monitoring. Uh, most of these seizures become non-convulsive, so if you're in a place that cannot do continuous EEG monitoring, 
they should probably be moved to one that can. Okay. Um, we do have people available to help with advice on these. Uh, there are treatments that work in really refractory cases. Um, yes, we fairly routinely use things such as ketamine or the ketogenic diet or other oral anti-epileptic drugs uh, put down the feeding tube. Um, so there are other things, and um, we're happy to be a resource for that, and we're going to put things on the web, basically try and have a uh, list of experts who are available to consult on these cases for those who can't be transferred to a center that's used to handling these. Well, you know, let me kind of kind of flip the question a little bit. It, to those uh, uh, that may not the doctors, but just uh, the folks in the epilepsy community, people who listen to this uh, podcast, um, if people want to find out more about this, what do you recommend for them? Um, so, as, as you know, Epilepsy.com has been kind enough to uh, create a page for NOR, so yes. uh, we will try and make sure all the latest information is there. Um, we do have an, another great resource. So this is um, a woman named Nora Wong, her, her husband Raymond. They actually lost a child to Norse oh, a couple geez. of years ago. Yeah, and, um, but uh, Nora has been very helpful in trying to increase awareness and get some research going on this. And she has created an uh, email address for people to contact her for anybody who's going through this, families or patients. Um, so that email, which she gave mm -hmm. me permission and encourages people to use, is nora, N-O-R-A, dot norse, N-O-R-S-E, at gmail.com. So for okay. anyone who wants more information, they can contact nora at that, nora.norse, at gmail.com, or go to the epilepsy.com page. Um, and Nora is also working on setting up a uh, Norse Institute with its own website as well. But we'll make sure all that information gets to epilepsy.com. Absolutely. Um, so th that's where to get more information. So, so for for the time being, email that email to Ms. Wong, and and that's for help support any latest information. And then when the uh, website's up, certainly we can post that out so that people uh, know about that as well. Right. Larry, um, we're in our last minute or so, and um, what take-home issues or any other points do you want to make sure that our audience uh, walks away from listening to this podcast that we may not have covered or that you just want to emphasize um, as we kind of, uh, as you help to lay the groundwork on our understanding of the condition? Right. Uh, so a couple of things. One, just reminding people to use the term NORS, because that's going to okay. certainly help for patients and families. And two, to realize that there is a lot of research going on now, so the, there's a large registry to do this prospectively and in a standard fashion, and that will ultimately lead to clinical trials as well. Um, so we're putting that up now and trying to get grants or money uh, to do more things such as immune markers and genetic studies and things like that to nail down a little bit more about the etiology. Um, and lastly, one important point is you could ask, well, what's the big deal? This is very rare. Why should we put a lot of effort into this? But right. I think there is a much broader relevance. So 
So we're mainly related to the immune system. So we're really realizing more and more how much of epilepsy is a potentially autoimmune disease. And we, as we know about 40% of epilepsy, there's no clear explanation. And there's more and more studies coming out that even people with less severe epilepsies might have some autoantibody or some other autoimmune illnesses that uh, may be related to this. Uh, there, there was an interesting recent publication that people with all kinds of autoimmune diseases, or lupus or Sjogren's or uh, a whole variety, thyroid disease, diabetes, that they all had a significantly higher rate of epilepsy. And sometimes the epilepsy preceded the other diagnosis. So it wasn't just some complication of it. So I think um, using these severe cases to identify the role of the immune system in epilepsy and cytokines and specific antibodies really might relate to the broader epilepsy, um, particularly the ones without obvious explanations. Well, you know, that is fantastic uh, uh, information for us. It's very helpful. Um, and, uh, Larry, as we as more research and more um, is understood about how to manage, how to identify, I hope that we can count on you to come back uh, and join us and, and inform us as, as things progress in this area. Absolutely. I'd love to and appreciate the opportunity to uh, do this today. Uh, we, we love having you here. We've been talking to Dr. Larry Hirsch. He is Professor of Neurology uh, at the Yale University School of Medicine. He is Director of the Epilepsy Program at Yale University. He's been talking about Norse and uh, has uh, given us a lot of very important information. To everyone out there, I hope that this has been helpful and useful information, and I hope you have a good rest of the day. Uh, come and join us on epilepsy.com at any point. And thanks so much for joining us. This is Dr. Joe Servan, Editor-in-Chief of Epilepsy.com. Take care.